We are looking at the shadows of Christ in the pages of the Old Testament, and you could obviously preach any passage of the Old Testament and the shadow of Christ is cast on it, but we are trying to strategically look at what we might say are paradigmatic passages, passages that are going to help shape a framework for how we read the Bible properly. Um, And we're going to do that by looking at how the New Testament tonight uses Hosea 11.1. It's one of the most profound uh, Christological uses of the Old Testament in the New. There are depths there. There are difficulties. But I think as we get how Matthew uses um, that one verse at the top of this chapter, we will understand better how to read the Old Testament in light of Christ, the true Israel of God. And so I want to invite you to turn to Hosea 11, uh, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to turn over to the Gospel of Matthew and look at a few verses in chapter 2. There, Hosea, who is uh, prophesying in the second part of the 8th century to a nation that has uh, given itself over to Baal worship, it has turned away from the Lord, it is. Uh, synchronized its religion. It has uh, turned to idolatry. And and God has raised up Hosea to be the prophet to call his people back to him in jealous love and mercy, calling Israel to return, backsliding Israel to come back. And as Hosea is revealing his message, now he writes these words, the Lord speaking through him, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Now, just remember, Ephraim is a shorthand, a nickname for the northern kingdom of Israel. The kingdom is divided between Israel and Judah. Ephraim is a shorthand for Israel in the northern kingdom. It was I, the Lord says, who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those are shorthands for Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord when he shall roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. And like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. And then if you would turn over to Matthew chapter 2. And there in, in the continuing birth narrative of Jesus says he is um, still an infant. 
Notice in chapter 2, verse 13, we read, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he cites Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time when he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, everyone loves the story of a new beginning. Everyone wants a second chance to to do those things in life that they haven't done well and to do them right and to have a fulfilled life. I, I think that's probably a common experience for every single person in this room. And it's one of the reasons why we love the movie Groundhog Day. As frustrating as it is to watch Bill Murray relive the same day over and over and over and over, trying to become the person that he always wanted to be and to have a fulfilled life, he is getting that opportunity. There is a recapitulation of his day until he finally comes to a place where he's become who he should have become. Well, the reason I tell you that as an illustration is when we read the Old Testament, there is a principle of recapitulation. Um, We see this in numerous themes, and we might call them motifs. And one of the big ones is the principle of the Exodus. Um, You'll remember, as Pastor Cosby preached through Genesis recently, that in those early chapters, Uh, Abraham experiences something of an exodus. He goes down into Egypt, and and there uh, there's danger. And he gives Sarah away as as if she were his sister. And then God plagues um, the king of Egypt, and then he brings Abraham out with great riches. And, And what's the point of that? Well, God is preparing Abraham's descendants for what he is going to do for them when he brings them out of the bondage and servitude of Egypt so many hundreds of years later. Um, And then as the exodus occurs and God redeems his people in love and in mercy and he draws them out with a strong arm and an outstretched hand and he brings them through the sea and, and he brings them out as it were a new creation. The language is is that, right? The waters are separated, just like in Genesis 1, and dry land appears. It's the same language, and Israel comes through. They are, they are a new creation, typically. God is doing something new in redemption, and he is showing forth something. And then that act itself becomes, becomes the centerpiece of the Old Testament. The prophets are constantly drawing off the language of the Exodus, Um, I was struck this week by how often Isaiah, especially in those later chapters from chapter 40 to 66, Isaiah is constantly using Exodus language and imagery to explain what God is going to do in the new covenant. 
there's a prediction that there's going to be a greater exodus, a new exodus, that what Israel experienced so long before was serving as a pattern of what they should be looking for, something greater, something better. That's why that language appears of God uh, causing dry land to appear and, and, and God fighting as a, a mighty warrior against their enemies. It's, it's all going back to what the Lord did at the Exodus. And so when we come here to Hosea 11.1 1 and down to verse 12, we are meant to see that the Lord is again using what he had done for Israel in order to instruct them about both where they were at present and where he was going to bring them. If you looked at the flow of the chapter, if you spent time studying this, and we're not going to look at this in great depth, but if you went through this chapter, you would find that the Lord is making that great declaration that Israel is his beloved son. Um, That language really comes out of Exodus chapter 4, where the Lord tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, let my son go. And, and yet Israel rebels against the Lord here as throughout its history, fighting against the father who had cared so intimately um, for this newly created son, as it were. And, um, and Israel is constantly backsliding. And this chapter is going to focus on God's indictment that they're backsliding constantly, as many times as the Lord calls, they are going against. They are, they, are, they are resisting his calls to return. And then God is telling them of judgment. He is saying to them, because you're resisting, um, there is going to be judgment. And, and I'm going to send the Assyrians, and they're soon going to be destroyed by the Assyrians. And, and yet God is going to tell them in this chapter As you follow the flow, he is going to say then, yet my heart yearns for you. How can I destroy you? How can I pour out all my judgment on you? And and then he's going to promise restoration. And he's going to say, essentially, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt again. So there's bookends. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And then... Notice verse 11, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. He is pointing back to the Exodus. He is pointing forward to a restoration that is built on the Exodus. Um, What I want us to see tonight, I just want us to consider two things as we look at this together. First, I want us to consider the call to remember the love of God in redemption, and then the promise of restoration. And that's how Matthew is going to pick up Hosea 11.1, the promise of restoration in the coming Redeemer. Now, notice that the Lord is is beckoning his people to remember his love for them. It's very interesting. You would think, because if you ask any unbeliever what they think about God, they'll always tell you, I think God is love, but not one of them actually believes that God is love. Any unbeliever you talk to who say, I believe God is love, not one of them believes that God is love because not one of them goes to the Son who demonstrates that love for sinners. On the converse, believers often have a hard time actually 
receiving and resting in the love of God. When things go hard, when there are times of affliction or discipline or hardship, or we feel the dark night of the soul, we ask, does the Lord really love me? And Israel has turned away from God, and in doing so, they have forgotten the love of God. They have forgotten what he has done for them. They've forgotten who he was in in redeeming them by grace. Remember, Israel didn't do anything to be loved by God. Remember remember the words of uh, Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The the Lord tells Israel at the beginning, you haven't done anything to deserve this. I have set my heart on you. I have freely set my love on you, not because of anything in you. Um, The Lord will tell Israel and will tell us um, in Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I love that quote by Gerhardus Voss. He says, the surest way to know that God will never stop loving you is to know that he never started. I've loved you with an everlasting love. There was never a point in time when God decided I'm now going to start loving my people. He's the eternal God. And he set his love on Abraham and in the Old Testament on his descendants and in the New Testament on those savingly united to Jesus because he freely chooses to. Um, This is Paul's whole argument, isn't it, in Romans 9. I'll have mercy on whom I will. I'll have compassion on whom I will. Jacob I've loved. Esau I've hated. Why did he love Jacob? Remember the story. A woman stood up. Charles Spurgeon was preaching and preaching on Romans 9. Jacob I've loved. Esau I've hated. And and she said, how how could God hate Esau? And he said, ma'am, I'm not concerned with how God could hate Esau, but with how he could love Jacob. Because the moment we think we deserve God's love is the moment we're turning inward on ourselves and we're not actually understanding what the love of God is. And the moment we turn away from God to idols, as Israel did in this context, is the moment that we've forgotten the love of God. Um, Sinclair Ferguson likes to say so much of the Christian life painfully feels like us saying, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. Um, Here the Lord is reminding Israel of his redemptive love. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. What was the demonstration of his love? If you could, as it were, take Romans 5, where the Apostle Paul gives those great words, God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and superimpose that back in the Old Testament, it would say God demonstrated his own love for Israel, so he brought them out of bondage in Egypt. It was a great act of redemption. And, and they should have meditated on that. You know, um, I squarely believe this. The key to the Christian life and continuance in the Christian life and victory whenever we find ourselves drawing back is meditating on the gospel. It's meditating on what God has done. And the moment we forget it is the moment we turn to our own resources We may live with a guilty conscience. We may live with uh, beating ourselves up. We may live with spiritual pride or self-righteousness. 
But God is always calling his people to remember his love, remember what he's done for them. I quoted this recently at a church. I I don't often quote Karl Barth, but um, he was asked once, uh, what is the greatest theological truth? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's beautiful. That's, that's the heart. I knew a minister who complained every time people in the church during a hymn sing chose that hymn. It's really tragic because it is the greatest truth. God loves his people. And he calls you to meditate on that love and to reflect on what he's done out of that love. And Israel has rejected him and has gone wayward. You'll notice that um, no matter how many times he does good to them. Notice verse 3 said, I taught Ephraim to walk like a child, like a, a father with a toddler, just teaching that child to walk. The Lord said, that's what I did for my people. And, and I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I took the yoke off of them. I did everything for them. I brought them up. I drew them out. And, and yet... And yet, there's a dark cloud. There's a dark cloud because no matter how often the Lord called them, no matter how often the Lord's compassion was, was shown to them, they, they rejected him. Notice he says in verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. And yet God's love... And his covenant faithfulness are so unquenchable that he is determined not to destroy his people. Um, There's great comfort here, isn't there? Notice verse 8. In verse 7, he says, how can I treat you like Sodom and Gomorrah? They become just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But he said, how can I deal with you? How How can I obliterate you? How can I destroy you? From before me, he says, I will not exercise my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Listen to this, for I am God and not man. If God were a man, he would destroy everyone. That's what he's saying. But he's not a man. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, Isaiah says, so God says, my thoughts are greater than your thoughts. And this is the God that says, come, let us, let us, let us reconcile these thoughts. Think my thoughts after me. He says, though your sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Let us reason together. He says, I am God and not man. I will not come in wrath. Now, we ought to be asking the question, um, how do we reconcile the fact that God ought to come in wrath on his people, on us, but he doesn't he comes in love does he set one of his attributes aside for another no i want to read this to you rick phillips is really great meditation he says in the very heart of god in his heart in which his justice requires wrath there is also the covenant promise he made so long ago to abraham regarding his offspring i will be a god to you and your offspring so instead of overturning his covenant commitment he overturns his own heart now he's going to do that by putting the rebellion and the idolatry and the sins of his people on his own son at the cross. He is going to come in wrath toward our sins. He must deal in wrath. And yet the Lord Jesus stands in the place of sinners. 
Now, I think in part that's how we get to Matthew 2. And so I want us to consider, secondly, this promise of restoration. It flows from the loving heart of God. He reminds his people what he's done. He reminds them now what he will do. Notice verse 10 and 11. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. This is where C.S. Lewis gets the imagery of Aslan roaring and his people submitting and coming to him and and doing what he says. And, And no doubt that's a kingly metaphor. Remember, Judah was the tribe from which the kings would come and and. Jesus will be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The king will roar and his people will come. Um, They will come trembling like birds from Egypt. There's going to be a new exodus. Now, here's the interesting thing. Israel never went down into Egypt again. Old covenant Israel never went down into Egypt and was never brought out a second time. Nor will they ever. And I will argue with you on that. Don't sit around and wait for the state of Israel to go down into Egypt and these prophecies to be fulfilled. They've already been fulfilled. In Jesus. And so when we turn over to Matthew 2, and I want you to turn there with me, and you look at how Matthew uses this, and there are questions. Uh, Legion have been the explanations offered by theologians. Some say that Matthew here, as he looks at the, the, the infant narrative of Jesus and the wise men coming down and then Herod's rage and, and, and Joseph being warned in the dream to go down into Egypt for a time and then God's going to bring him up. And, and then that quote there, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. And some commentators say it, here what Matthew is doing is he is, he is writing a different ending. He, this is not what Hosea intended because Hosea is clearly in Hosea 11.1 1, reminding the nation of Israel, of what God did in the Exodus. And and then other commentators say Matthew is using a Jewish uh, uh, type of interpretation that's sort of a mystical interpretation to get where he gets to. And I, I don't think either of those are right. There are even scholars who say Matthew lays aside the grammatical historical reading of Hosea 11 and 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 does what he wants and we should follow his example. That's that's bad advice. We should follow Matthew's example, but not for that. Matthew, I think, is drawing off of what Hosea is teaching in chapter 11. And and I think Matthew understands that Isaiah is predicting a new exodus. Even as he points Israel back, he understands that there's going to be a new drawing out in which God is going to fully and really redeem his people. Um, it's striking. I open with that illustration about Groundhog Day. Um, there is there is a real recapitulation, a real redoing of Israel's history in the coming of Christ. He he is he is the last Israelite, as it were. Um, Jesus is the true Son of Abraham. Now, you have to listen very carefully. Matthew's gospel is going to give us this beautiful picture of Jesus as the true Israel bringing about the greater exodus. And here's how he's going to do it. In chapter one, listen carefully, chapter one, he's going to open with the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham to Christ. He doesn't go back to Adam. He goes to Abraham. And he is saying in that 
This is the true son of Abraham. This is the true Israel. This is the greater son of Abraham. In essence, all of Israel's history in the Old Testament was preparing for that coming of the greater true son of Abraham. And then as, as, uh, as Matthew notes here in, in verse uh, 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So as, as a child, he goes down into Egypt He comes out of Egypt. What's happening at the same time? A mighty king is oppressing the people of God, is killing the babies, just like the Exodus, just like with Pharaoh and the infants. And here God is preserving the promised seed. He's preserving the Redeemer. What was the Exodus about? It wasn't about preserving the nation of Israel, ultimately. It was about preserving the promised seed, the Redeemer. That's how Matthew is getting here. He realizes that in the Exodus, there was a preservation principle. That God was not going to be unfaithful to his promise. He was going to bring the seed of the woman who was going to crush the head of the serpent. And even in God's warfare against Pharaoh in Egypt and the plagues, that was the seed of the woman, as it were, uh, going in battle against the seed of the serpent in typical form. Matthew understands typology. He gets divinely inspired typology. And he understands that the the seed has come, the son has come. That if Israel was called God's son, there is one greater than that Israel. There is the true son of God, the true son of Abraham. And and then this is fascinating. Matthew takes us from there. He says he says he goes down into Egypt, he comes out of Egypt, he goes where next? Through the waters. The same waters that Israel would cross before they went into the promised land. He goes through the waters into the wilderness. Remember, Israel is in the wilderness. Israel is being tempted in the wilderness where Israel has failed. The true Israel has succeeded. Um, my, my parents befriended a jeweler when I was um, about 17 and I, I sort of had this thing for pocket watches because they're cool, and I wanted to be cool. And, um, and this jeweler happened to be an expert in pocket watches, and so he would teach me how to spot counterfeits from the real invaluable pocket watches. And I remember on one occasion, he took out a little magnifying glass, and he showed me the, the smallest initials. You couldn't see without the magnifying glass, but those initials showed that this was the real thing. Um, When Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, what scripture does he appeal to? He appeals to three passages out of Deuteronomy that God had given Israel in the wilderness. That's not arbitrary. Those are the details. He is the true Israel. He is. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. Israel was meant to be salvation to the nations. Israel failed at every step. And so the true Israel comes and, and says, I will do what my people have failed to do for millennia, and I will do it perfectly. And so he goes through the water into the wilderness. And then where does Matthew take us? Up on the mountain where he re-gives the law. Sermon on the Mount. He's the, he is the greater Moses. He comes down from the mountain. He then 
as it were, uh, leads out the kingly ministry. He says one greater than David is here, one greater than Solomon is here, one greater than the temple is here. And then later chapters in Matthew, chapters 23 and 24, he, he, he sounds exactly like the prophets during the prophetic era. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, woe to you. He sounds just like Isaiah and Jeremiah because he is the true prophet and he brings the true prophetic ministry. And then at the end of his life, the very thing that God warned Israel was going to happen to them happens to him. He is exiled. He is cut off from the land of the living. Isaiah says he is cut off from the land of the living. He is, he is cast out into the no man's land of the darkness of God's judgment. All of the covenant curses that God promised Israel fell on him. Darkness. Darkness covering the land. Um, Darkness was a plague in Egypt, and it was a covenant curse. And here Jesus is being exiled because of us so that we're not cast out into outer darkness forever. The only way you will not be cast into outer darkness forever is because he was. And if you're not in him, you will be. He is exiled as the true Israel. And then he is restored, the restoration prophecies. As you read the prophets and God goes from wrath to promises of grace and new creation and restoration and renewal. Streams are going to burst forth in the wilderness and all of the great imagery. You're going to drink wine from the mountains. Amos says God is going to rebuild everything that has been torn down and it's going to be better and it's going to be more glorious and it's going to be spiritual and it's going to be eternal The restoration promises because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And as he has been raised, he has raised us with him. So when Matthew says, out of Egypt I have called my son, there is a world of theology. There is a world of theology. Um... You know, when Jesus is at the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter and those with him are asleep and Moses and Elijah appear, Luke says they, they spoke with him about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So when, when Moses and Elijah came back from glory after well over a thousand years, what do they want to talk about? They want to talk about the true Israel and the greater exodus through Jesus' death and resurrection, the greater Moses, the true Passover lamb, they want to know all about how he takes what God did so long before and makes it a spiritual reality for everybody who trusts in him. Now, here's the really cool thing. Israel is first a person before it's a nation. It's Jacob. It's the one and then the many. So the nation comes from the one. Jacob stands as the covenant head. As the Old Testament moves into the new, it moves from the many to the one, Jesus, and then from the one to the many, everyone who's united to him. So that if you're united to Jesus by faith, you are part of the true Israel of God, you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You, God has taken of two people and made one new man in Christ. 
The Apostle Paul, after saying it's not about being Jewish for five chapters in Galatians, turns around and says it's about being a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. So that we have all the promises fulfilled in him. Now, what difference does this make? I mean, we kind of just did a trip through Disney World. It was fast. Um, There were not a lot of crowds, thankfully. Um, What difference does this make for you, though? If Israel had remembered what God had done for them and how it pointed forward to what he was going to do in the coming Redeemer, they would not have turned at every call away from him. So that what draws my heart back into the loving arms of the father, just like the prodigal, is knowing that he is longing for his people to come to him and has so done everything necessary in the Lord Jesus Christ that the only thing he requires is that you come to him. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, I'll give you rest for your souls. Joshua could never give Israel the rest they needed. The writer of Hebrews says, there is a greater Joshua, and if you come to him, he gives you the eternal rest. He gives you the eternal inheritance. He destroys all of our enemies. He conquers the land. Isn't it awesome? When, when, Israel, when Israel was to cross over into Canaan, they were to destroy the pagan nations for their filth and the pollution of the land, and they failed to do that. When, when Jesus crosses the Jordan, what's, what does he immediately begin doing when he steps foot onto the promised land? He, he casts out the true Canaanites, the demons. He, he cleanses the land, and he, and he cleanses us. He purifies us. And he makes us his own special dwelling place. Um, Whatever thoughts you have about Christ, they are too small. Whatever thoughts I have about Christ, they are too small. Um, My best friend used to say, reflecting on this, Jesus as the the last Adam and the true Israel, he said, you know, I, I personally don't like stained glass images of Jesus, not just because of the second commandment, he said, because every time I look at one, I see a Jesus that seems to be saying, come to me, um, but not with too much. (laughs) And this Jesus says, bring all your burdens, all your backslidings. It doesn't matter where you've been. God calls you back and he's, and he's made the way back and he's already fulfilled everything so that no matter where your heart is, in relationship to the Lord, no matter how how much in the far country you may be, he has come and done everything necessary for you to come to him with all of your sin, all of your backsliding, all of your rebellion. That's This is the God speaking in Hosea. It's the God who speaks to us in Christ. Um, I hope that you'll be encouraged to see the gloriousness of the fulfillment of the exodus in the Lord Jesus, but I hope that you'll come to him no matter what you bring in coming and you will go to him knowing he is mighty to save and that he's fulfilled all the covenant promises so that all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for 
these portions of scripture, we thank you that you give us a greater sight of the sufficiency of the Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the true son of Abraham, the true Israel of God. We thank you that you have fulfilled all the covenant promises for us and that you have taken all the covenant curses for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Passover lamb and the greater Moses who leads us in conquering Satan and sin and death. We pray that you would draw us with cords of love, that you would encourage each and every man, woman, and boy and girl present here to be coming to you, knowing that you have done everything necessary to receive us and welcome us back. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.